everyone, and welcome to season three, episode seven of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the host today alongside Andrew Friedman. We are uh, sector heads at Hedgeye for technology, Andrew for communications. We are without Felix today. The sector head for China is normally with us, but we do have Yosef Aitzblad subbing in for him, director of technology on my team. Uh, we have a guest today on Unscripted. And to Hedgeye Nation, he is no stranger. His name is Josh Steiner. He's a Hedgeye vet. He's been with Hedgeye for 14 years. He is the sector head for financials. He is the sector head for payments. He is also co-sector head for macro. He is a walking dictionary of everything interesting from everything from wine to, I, I bet we could throw cigars at him. I'm not sure. But today we're a little bit more interested in uh, macroeconomics and uh, specifically how it is going to um, F up and ruin all of our lives and, and, or, or take all of our investments by surprise. Um, as you can imagine, we have like a backlog of questions here and I'll start with an open-ended one and then you'll, you'll, you'll tell me on the backlog, by the way, listeners, that's just me and Andrew and, and Yosef all like kind of like brainstorming questions in advance. I'm going to open it up um, with a few like puzzle pieces, attack whatever you want in whatever order you want. Um, so I guess like the first question is like banking crises are never not scary. Um, credit crises are never not scary. But when we went into one in 2008, like the last time that had happened was, I don't know, you know the date, but I do not. I mean, it's long before my lifetime, I believe. And at the time, they had to bring in Geithner, who had been rescuing like, you know, third world countries to understand what the playbook would be, right? Wall of money. And uh, now, fast forward 15 years, like kind of like everyone knows the playbook. Is Does this lessen the risk, the fact that, we all like the playbook is known and the rescue is known and the trajectory is known. I guess that's one question I have. And then on the flip side of that, as contagions are never contained, um, where, if you had to like guess the echoes from here, like remember last time we had Bear went down and then the echo was Lehman and everyone else in the United States. And then the United States echoed out into like nearly toppling parts of Europe, including Greece. Um, can you imagine some scenarios of echoes from the current crisis that will leak out, leach out from here? Um, okay. And then I'll stop there. That's a big open-ended question. Feel free to attack it however you want. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, yeah. I mean, pretty pretty open-ended questions there, but I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, so yeah, I, I think the the thing to sort of take away from 2008 is that, um, you know, it had been really the first time uh, since, you know, the late eight, mid to late 80s um, that, you know, the, the country had gone through a financial crisis. And I think a lot of what 2008 was about was essentially establishing resolution protocols, right? So, you know, you've got a big problem, you've got banks uh, that are undercapitalized. Remember too that much of the problem uh, in 2008 wasn't actually even with the banks, right? right? It was really non-banks. So, yeah, it was they were all investment banks for the most part, but at the time those weren't actually banks in, in the commercial banking sense of the world. 
um, or words. So, you know, effectively, uh, what ended up happening is that those institutions all became banks because uh, that gave the Fed the power to uh, step in and uh, you know roll out basically an, an alphabet soup of uh, liquidity uh, facilities, which obviously uh, ultimately uh, helped to contain things. Of course, you had, as Keith likes to call him, Hank the Tank Paulson, roll out the uh, the bazooka. Remember that uh, $700 billion facility called TARP, where every institution was forced to take down a massive slug of uh, government-supplied equity capital. And, uh, you know, ultimately, the problem was, you know, really sort of born from the housing market. It, it did sort of, you know, uh, metastasize a bit out from there. Um, but yeah, we came, uh, you know, if you will, perilously close uh, to, you know, a moment in time where the system itself was about to collapse. I mean, you know, it's, it's crazy. And I, I talked about this the other day. Um, what's crazy was this idea that, you know, you look at like when Bank of America acquired Merrill Lynch, I mean, had they waited, you know, hours instead of paying, I think they paid $52 billion, they could have gotten it for free, right? I mean, every major investment bank uh, was poised to collapse. Um, obviously, Lehman has sort of become the scapegoat and the fall guy. I worked for, you know, Lehman Brothers for a while and, um, you know, thought pretty highly of that place. Um, but, you know, the reality is that Lehman wasn't really any different than what every other institution was doing. And, you know, exposures were really the same. And as you said, you know, I mean, Bear obviously was one of the first dominoes to fall. In fact, there were a series of dominoes that fell before Bear uh, that get a lot less uh, attention and scrutiny. But really, it was it was Bear that was uh, the clear indication of the, the degree of uh, stress and danger in the system. Uh, Lehman just happened to be the next weakest link in the chain. But every link in the chain up from Lehman was you know, like minutes, you know, maybe hours, but certainly uh, minutes, you know, away from basically snapping as well. So effectively, uh, that's how close we came back in 2008 in the fall. Uh, and, you know, the resolution to that was let's basically, um, you know, put in place uh, too big to fail sort of designations. You know, it, it was sort of unofficial. Um, it sort of effectively, you know, it's kind of like with Fannie and Freddie, right? So Fannie and Freddie um, have this, you know, have always sort of had this uh, this implicit government guarantee uh, behind them. And then, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, that's effectively what happened uh, with the big banks in this country post-2008 is, you know, even though they're not explicitly guaranteed by, you know, the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, there's almost an implicit guarantee. That's why when all of this, you know, uh, stuff going down over the last two, three, four weeks uh, with, you know, these regional bank failures was happening, I was basically saying, look, you know, if you really are concerned about your uninsured uh, deposit money, then what you want to do is you basically want to move upstream, meaning the largest institutions, you know, really just as defined by total assets, are inherently the safest institutions because they really are too big to fail. You know, from a, a GSIB or global systemically important bank standpoint, the government and really governments around the world cannot afford to allow those institutions to fail uh, because it would basically unleash financial Armageddon 
uh, if that were to happen. So if you want to be in a safe place, there's really arguably not a safer institution, assuming you want to stay within the banking system, safer institution than uh, the largest ones out there. So um, anyway, I, I've already forgotten the second part of your question, but uh, we can come back to that. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Well, I guess like the, the question was two parts. So one was um, in light of the fact that that sort of like we have a playbook now versus 2008, which we had to discover the rediscover the playbook. Um, we have a playbook today, you know, is the, is the fact that, that this contagion of credit crisis is a known known, does that kind of like limit the downside risk is one question. The second question is in light of, given the fact that contagions are almost never financial contagions are almost never contained. Um, where do you see, uh, like if you had to like close your eyes and fast forward a few months, six months, whatever it is, where do you see the problems popping up? Uh, last time it's, you know, like I said, it went from, you know, from Bear to Lehman to, well, basically everything. And then to Greece, you know, kind of like is where we should have ended up. If you had to sort of close your eyes and guess, like what, what are we going to be reading about in six months time in two years time of like the pop-ups of like this current credit problem? You know, just to put a little, so the first part of the question, put a little context around, you know, what's happening today. Um, were there sort of parallels and, and similarities in the past? And, you know, what were those? When were those? Um, yeah. So what's interesting about this environment is that it was really the almost in a lot of ways, sort of the exact opposite of 2008. Right. So so 2008 was really a uh, credit driven um, crisis this time around, at least so far, and we'll get to the next part of your question in a minute, which will address the future. But um, at least so far, uh, really hasn't been uh, credit driven for the most part. It's been more liquidity driven. Um, essentially, you know, you you sort of ran into um, similar scenario uh, to what you had in the 1980s, um, you know, with the SNL crisis. So, you know, back then, uh, you had you know, hundreds of thrifts that basically, you know, had you know, locked in long-term, uh, you know, 30-year mortgages on the balance sheet at, uh, you know, relatively low rates uh, as the Fed continued to raise, you know, they, they are primarily deposit funded. Um, their cost of funds, you know, kept going up. And ultimately, um, you know, that asset liability mismatch created a crisis situation where they, they simply couldn't uh, continue to operate under that degree of, of you know, spread pressure. And then, of course, it didn't help that uh, as the late 80s rolled into the early 90s, uh, you had a <clears throat> bona fide uh, real estate market correction. So that ended up sort of taking uh, just about everybody out. Um, you know, this so this time around was sort of a variation on that theme, right? Um, you know, of course, it was all sort of an environment that was fostered by, created by the Fed, where, you know, because of, you know, the pandemic, cut rates to zero, which was understandable, certainly in the early phases when there was so much uncertainty 
but you know, clearly, and I, I get it. Hindsight's you know kind of easy to be critical, but uh, clearly the Fed left conditions way too easy, way too long, right? So, you know, by the time we had reached two um, Q of twenty one. Uh, inflation on a quarterly basis had already approached 5%. Uh, and remember, that was when the Fed was saying this was transitory, not to worry, it's you know used car prices and not much more. Well, from there, it went on over the following year to go up to 9%. Um, and then it was a whole year after that, not until 2Q of 22, uh, that the Fed actually began tightening. So they clearly let this fester for way, way too long. Um, part of what sort of resulted from that was this tremendous sort of, you know, ZERP or zero interest rate policy, uh, sort of comfortability, if you will, on the part of the banks. In other words, you know, you, Silicon Valley has obviously become sort of the, the modern day Lehman Brothers, the poster child for everything that went wrong. Uh, but the reality is a lot of banks were in, you know, fairly similar positions to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was just a little bit worse than everybody else. Um, they had, you know, effectively, you know, low to no cost deposit structure. And they were really struggling because uh, deposits grew, you know, exponentially over the course of 2020, 2021. There wasn't a lot of loan demand. Uh, so they had to go and park that money somewhere. So they parked it in securities and they said, well, geez, we can barely earn 20, 30 basis points in, you know, two-year treasuries. So let's go out further on the curve. And that's what they did. And then they ultimately, um, you know, there's sort of a shell game that banks can play where they can move their securities um, from uh, one category called available for sale, uh, where the securities are marked and those marks, they don't flow through the income statement, but they th flow through the balance sheet through uh, what's known as AOCI or accumulated other comprehensive income. And that is relevant um, in some respects. Um, and so in order to avoid that, banks can move those securities out of AFS into what's called HTM or held to maturity where they don't get marked um, and there really aren't any regulatory capital uh, implications. And so, as you can imagine, the incentive uh, to do that is fairly strong. Um, the problem is that, you know, if you kind of do that with a lot of securities that are long durated, very low yield, uh, and then the Fed were, you know, to sort of really change the regime, the interest rate regime, then you end up with the scenario we ended up with, which is all of a sudden, you're massively underwater on these securities, right? So um, if you mark to market Silicon Valley's hold, held to maturity investment portfolio book, uh, they were sitting on something like a $15, $16 billion negative mark, right? Well, their tangible net worth was only about $15, $16 billion. So they were effectively, you know, insolvent or very close to being insolvent uh, with that in mind. And then on the other side, right, you had basically, you know, this massive concentration of depositors, in this case, you know, north of 90% of their deposits were uninsured because it was, you know, the average depositor had something like four or five million on deposit. They were largely, you know, VC firms and so forth. And they were all sort of, you know, generally like-minded, meaning that they all kind of got the memo simultaneously over social media that, you know, there was some concern over Silicon Valley Bank. And so you ended up with this, this you know, just extraordinarily fast-moving event. Um, and then that sort of spread, you know, like wildfire across the landscape to Signature Bank, to First Republic, to PacWest, to Western Alliance, to Schwab, um, you know, and if the FDIC, Treasury and Fed had not done what they did that weekend, three or four weekends ago, 
um, really what you would have seen uh, would have been a full-blown banking panic uh, that would have seen most banks, um, you know, that were not in really the top three or four or five banks in the country, um, you know, experiencing bank runs that they would not have been able to accommodate. So it, it was a different crisis, but one that we've certainly seen in the past. As far as um, second part of the question, you know, is there still contagion risk? I think, you know, without a doubt, um, usually uh, these things tend to sort of, you know, simmer in the background. The government sort of rolls out, you know, efforts to contain. Sometimes those efforts are successful. Sometimes, oftentimes they're not. Uh, so, you know, we'll see if we get, you know, further developments on this front. I would say that, you know, one sort of positive uh, effect of, you know, sort of, I guess there's some some sort of interesting, uh, you know, undertones to this. But one thing that's kind of interesting is that the fallout from all of this has actually lessened the risk profile. And that's because you've seen uh, the long end of the curve come down uh, in yield terms. So, uh, the marks on the the unrealized marks on those books have gotten less bad on the margin. So that actually has made the situation a little bit less tenuous. Uh, but really where we're focused is, you know, moving forward is less so on the sort of um, liquidity backdrop. Uh, this BTFP program that the Fed put in place is a pretty big deal. Uh, that really gives banks a tremendous amount of flexibility and leeway on that front. Uh, but we're more interested at this point in the prospect of credit dynamics. So, you know, it's not uncommon that you have liquidity crises turn into credit crises. And uh, one of the reasons for that is in the wake of liquidity crises, uh, you tend to see uh, credit contractions, right? So a slowing in the rate of commercial bank loan growth. And that's actually exactly what we're seeing. We've been seeing it now uh, since its peak in rate of change terms in November last year. It's been slowing down. And actually, as part of our recent macro themes deck, uh, we included a slide where we looked at, you know, um, one month, two months, three months, six months, 12 months out from the peak in the Fed funds rate, what happens to that rate of change in bank loan growth. And on average, looking back at every, you know, Fed uh, tightening cycle since 1973, 12 months out from the peak in Fed funds, uh, rate of change in bank loan growth is decelerated on average by four and a quarter percentage points, so something like 427 basis points. And so that's problematic because if you go back all the way, way back to like 1945, uh, what you find is that every time you've had a recession, uh, it's been led by a slowdown in bank loan growth and not even bank loan growth going negative, just slowing down, um, which should make decently intuitive sense, right? I mean, credit, credit growth is basically the pull forward of consumption. So to the extent that that's slowing down, obviously the ramifications are there for GDP. As far as categories of risk, I think one of the general truisms of, of banking and, and credit is that you know the crises of last time rarely tend to be the crises of next time. Um, you know, banks tend to be <laughs> always kind of fighting the last war in that respect, and so uh, really ever since two thousand eight. Um, underwriting on residential mortgage uh, loans has been very tight. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. There's little pockets of risk that are out there, and and you know, FHA is a little bit dicey, and you're certainly going to have some people who are underwater 
in some of these hotter markets like Austin and San Francisco, if they had bought in 2021 or 2022, that sort of thing. But um, in the aggregate, it's nothing like what was going on in 2005 through 2007 and the run-up to that crisis, where there is really in areas that weren't a problem last time around. One of those is commercial real estate. Uh, and the other is, in my opinion, auto lending. Um, so essentially what happened is uh, on the auto side, um, you had a massive number of people um, you know, go into this whole sort of, or I should say, you know, kind of go in and then come out of this whole pandemic environment um, with this sort of this Apollo's arrow mindset, which is, you know, Apollo's arrow's book goes back and looks at sort of the history of plagues throughout humanity's history going back thousands of years. And one of the commonalities they find is that in the wake of the resolution of those pandemics, um, you know, at least historically, you tend to see these explosions and, you know, birth rates and fertility. In the modern day, you sort of call it YOLO, right? So you basically had all these people sort of step up and, and decide that they wanted to go and buy an expensive car. Um, in many cases, down payments were funded by um, you know, government transfer payments, i.e. stimulus checks, uh, and then qualifying on incomes that were effectively uh, on the basis of things like enhanced unemployment checks. Right. And so, you know, wouldn't be at all uncommon to see somebody getting a thousand dollar monthly car payment, you know, on a forty thousand dollar annual income. And so now uh, you're starting to see real deterioration in uh, loan credit quality performance. So severe to auto delinquencies, 60 day plus um, delinquencies are running at levels that are very high and accelerating very rapidly, even with unemployment still in the mid three percent. Right. So. You know, by comparison, during the GFC, you got up to 10% unemployment. On the commercial real estate side, um, you've really got some interesting dynamics there. Um, in my opinion, you've had very sloppy underwriting that's gone on for a long time. Uh, now you overlay with that, obviously, the work from home dynamic, the sort of general de-urbanization trends that have been in place for quite a while. Um, you know, the fact that um, you know, most commercial uh, real estate lending occurs at small and mid-sized banks, right? Roughly two-thirds of it. Um, and, and, and you know, one of the big triggers in 08, uh, just to go back for a moment, uh, from a timing standpoint, was there were these great charts that showed the, um, the reset schedules for these 228, 129 products, right? So everybody who got basically a, a fixed, uh, you know, sort of negam um, loan product that basically held for 12 months or 24 months and then sort of fully recast. Uh, as those matured, getting into the you know late in the cycle, those were the moments in time when you had these big you know maturity waves uh, where you really ran into all these problems. And if you look at the commercial uh, mortgage market, uh, in 2023 and 2024, you've got massive maturity waves. So between the two years combined, you've got something like 1.4 trillion in maturing uh, commercial mortgages. So, you know, the timing is there. The banks are very clearly going to be much more cautious and conservative than they've been, you know, call it over the last several years. Um, and ultimately, that caution and, and conservatism is what feeds forward into these, you know, uh, these credit cycles. So in other words, you know, banks get nervous about getting repaid. 
so they tighten underwriting standards, right? They widen out lending spreads, money gets more expensive on top of what the Fed's doing. Um, and demand for their product generally goes down. Uh, and so all of that, you know, basically has the effect of driving credit losses higher. Uh, and that feeds back into the banks and makes them even more conservative, more cautious. And, and you get this vicious feed forward loop. Uh, and then ultimately there's a circuit there, which is the central bank. Uh, they step in, they lower the cost of money, they encourage risk assets, uh, you know, risk taking, risk asset prices to go up. And, and that's really the process. But where the Fed is today still is actually still on the other side. They're still raising rates, um, at least based on what I heard from you know, the last conference. Uh, Powell has no intentions of sort of cutting back anytime soon and see if that changes. But inflation's still very high. Unemployment's still very low. And, you know, we had sort of a, a threat there, but the plumbing of the financial system is still working. So that, that those are the areas that I'm focused on going forward. Awesome. I'll add by, to that, by the way, private equity, which I, I haven't looked at the data, I'm sure you have, but that's a business that's been driven by cheap debt. There's so many, so much of the economy that's now hidden behind that wall. So we don't know what the um, conditions are, EBITDA conditions, coverage ratios, things like that. Um, and uh, that's a business that I would say, you know, it's going to get tested. I'm going to pass it over to Andrew because he's got, uh, he's going to jump in with his next question. Hi, Robert McGordy here. Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager-in-chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long-and-short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, I just, I mean, it's amazing to your point on commercial real estate, Josh. Just like, it seems like every other day, there's another press release from a company in my space announcing cost reductions where, you know, uh, consolidating or closing or reducing the real, uh, their real estate footprint, you know, office is just, you know, everyone's doing it. Um, <clears throat> which Ami probably has implications, you know, for seat-based models. Now that I'm thinking about it in your space. But anyway, uh, Josh, just like at a, at a high level, um, you know, maybe for folks who are listening here that maybe not be as familiar with like the bank financial models, like just a, like how does competition for deposits and the current rate environment uh, impact kind of bank profitability between, you know, maybe the the haves and the have-nots or like the regionals versus the GSIBs, right? Because I think you see a lot on social media, like people saying, oh, look, here's, you know, JP Morgan, they're paying 0.0005%, right? But then you have this regional bank that's paying 5% trying to stay alive. So I don't know, I was hoping maybe you can kind of just flush that out just simply in terms of like, well, it's not simple, but you know, how the, how banks make money and like how those two dynamics impact uh, earnings either positively or negatively. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's obviously an interesting topic these days. So, you know, it, it's sort of a funny thing because, you know, in the, in the sense of like, be careful what you wish for, because prior to, you know, about a month ago, there was this sort of broadly held view that you know this rising rate backdrop was you know this massive tailwind for the banking system right and that is really because 
most banks have positioned themselves and had positioned themselves uh, to be what's called asset sensitive. So um, basically, if your assets re- you know that reprice within a year exceed your di- liabilities that reprice within a year, you're net asset sensitive. And if you look across the call reports for most of the banks in the country, what you find is that they generally coalesce in this sort of 25, 26% Net asset sensitivity position. In other words, uh, you know, roughly a quarter of their assets, uh, you know, reprice faster on net than their liabilities. So you would think that in this rising rate backdrop, that would be good for them. And you know, that was sort of the the conventional, conventionally held uh, view. Now, to be fair, and if you go back historically and, and you look at banks uh, from an equity price standpoint, that's tended to be true. Um, I think what's different obviously this time around, uh, is that the move-in rates was so significant and so sudden uh, that you ended up with this you know, very unintended consequence, uh, but very real consequence, uh, which is really the, you know, the, the crisis that we discussed earlier. Um, as far as what's happening uh, now, um, it's important to understand kind of um, you know, the, the sort of past and then, you know, initial conditions matter a lot in, in understanding the context for the future, right? So the way banks um, really had been sort of set up, and, and this isn't just over the last, you know, call it prior to this past 12 months of extraordinary tightening, you know, you had a couple of years of basically zero, zero uh, percent rates on top of QE. Um, but that's not really the, the, the moment in time. It actually goes back a lot further than that. You can go back at least to 2008. And you have a banking system that has, you know, much more often than not, really been operating in a zero or close to 0% rate environment. And as such, and and also, by the way, uh, a very benign inflation backdrop, right? Remember that for most of the 2010s, the Fed was really fighting against uh, outright deflation. Um, You know, not just sort of low inflation, but, you know, trying to keep inflation from turning negative. And in that environment, right, you know, the average person isn't really losing much purchasing power. Inflation's not much of a concern. And as such, you're not really giving much thought to the fact that deposits sitting at banks earning, you know, nothing or next to nothing, right? It's just sort of low on the consideration totem pole. Um, You know, you fast forward to today, and I think the environment has changed significantly and probably will continue to. Um, you know, so there are still a lot of deposits in the system that are paying, in, in many cases, 0%, like actually 0.0. So they're non-interest bearing deposits. Uh, but even interest bearing in many cases, like, you know, Andrew, you mentioned, you know, JP Morgan paying, you know, sort of 0.000, whatever. It's not far off from the truth. I mean, it, it, amazingly, if you look at most traditional savings accounts, across the banking system right now, many of them are still paying one basis point in interest. I mean, that's incredible, right? Amid a you know, mid to high single digit inflation backdrop, you're earning one one hundredth of a percent on so, your sales. So so what happens if, so what what would be the catalyst for JP Morgan to raise that? And then what would be their if they did that, what would be the implication for I guess maybe JP Morgan's earnings? Obviously you know, holding everything else equal, which is not reality, but just to kind of as an interesting thought experiment, like why would they do that? And what would be the catalyst? Yeah. And then the earnings impact, I just. Yeah. So, so, so one of the, um, 
one of the sort of key measures in a, in a changing rate environment is what's called a deposit beta. And deposit betas are basically the amount by which banks are increasing deposit rates relative to the amount that the Fed is increasing Fed funds rate. So if you have a uh, low deposit beta, which is the environment we had been in um, up until about you know three weeks ago, uh, essentially the Fed's raising rates a lot, but banks aren't taking up deposit um, uh, yields very much. So that is what creates a profitable backdrop, right? You know, all NII is just spread income. Um, so now the problem that the banks have uh, is really twofold. So the sort of the there's an overarching problem, which is that money is leaving the banking system in the form of deposit flight. Uh, so in the most recent week, um, you had something like 126 billion uh, leave, 126 billion in deposits leave the banking system in the aggregate. So there's uh, Fed data that comes out every week. It's called H8 data. You can see just about every category of the balance sheet um, for the banking system in the aggregate uh, and what that's doing on a weekly basis. So yeah, in the most recent week, 126 billion in deposits left the banking system. Where did it go? Probably most of it went to money market uh, funds to earn a better yield. Um, so that's a problem for everybody, right? Because deposits are your lowest cost, most stable source of funding. Um, you know, and and so as those go out the door, uh, that's obviously problematic. Um, then there's sort of so that's bad for everybody. And what that means is that banks in the aggregate are going to have to pay up to retain deposits prospectively. But where it's even worse is for small and mid-sized banks, uh, because in addition to that backdrop of banks generally leaving this or deposits generally leaving the system, for the small and mid-sized banks, they have also been seeing deposit flight from there into larger institutions. And so they're kind of getting hit by this double whammy. Um, and so they're really going to need to uh, increase what they're willing to pay more so even than, you know, the Goliaths like JP Morgan. The other thing I would mention real quickly is, you know, one of the big differences today versus, you know, even just 10 years ago um, is how easy it is in the digital age to move money around, right? And I'm not talking just about like fintech applications and so forth, but like if if I... You know, if I want to go find a high yield online savings account, right? I can go to, you know, Lending Tree or Bank Rate or Nerd Wallet and I can see what everybody's offering. And right now, most high yield savings accounts are offering between three and a half, four percent. Um, I can click through and I can open an account with those institutions probably in under 10 minutes, you know, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes. And then I can move however much money I want. Uh, by wire over to that account. It'll be there usually within a couple business days. Um, and boom, I've gone from earning, you know, let's say nothing uh, to earning three or 4% um, on my deposits. In other words, the friction or the barriers that have always, because it used to be, right, that there's like an enormous headache associated with going and opening a new account at a new financial institution, right? Like that's, that's about as much fun as going to the dentist. Uh, but nowadays, it's actually incredibly easy. And that represents sort of a longer term structural challenge for the banks as well, right? Because that's just, yeah, it, it's basically going to force them uh, to pay out. I, I, 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely, uh, it was definitely easy for me. And then I forget what that uh, application is, but uh, the name of it, but, you know, everything just can like, I don't know, integrate, right, with one another. I, I, I forget what the wow. name is. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. I, and, and I don't know, is that a public company? Is that? Uh, no, no, it's not. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it, it probably, there's a couple of sort of mega fintechs, um, you know, Stripe is one. Plaid is one yeah. uh, that probably will come public at, at some point. I think Stripe at one point was talking about maybe coming public within a year or so. So we'll see about all that. But yeah, but yeah it's interesting. Plaid makes it unbelievably easy. Got it. Sorry, I didn't mean to get off topic. I know, Ami, Yosef, uh, you, you had a question or Ami? Yeah. Um, okay. So, so just to, um, give our listeners a break from doom and gloom for a second, or actually maybe just to attack it from a different direction. Um, Yosef was kicking around some questions about innovation that were really good. And I wanted to, um, to sort of touch on that a little bit, which is kind of looking at things from both. Uh, so it's a two-part question. One is the banking side and one is the payment side. Um, you know, Yosef and I like studying uh, the tech sector and enterprise software and such. We see there are some companies, and I'll mention like Capital One, you know, specifically, for example, who seem to be like super nimble with their technology strategy, like first to jump on cloud, first to jump on Snowflake, first to jump on the net new. It's like you kind of know what's happening when they endorse it. Um, it's a big deal. So the first question is like, are you seeing any difference between haves and have nots in this crisis between those who've invested in like digital infrastructure and those who are like rolling their own and still kind of like stuck on cobalt and trying to move that along. And that's one question. And how does that get expressed at all um, in from your perspective? Um, and then the second question also on innovation is about e-commerce and is more about how like Yosef and I study like the e-commerce, you know, penetration relative like e-commerce revenue in the United States relative to total retail revenue and kind of study that as a penetration curve. And we're wondering like, is there some limitation um, that uh, weighs on that ability of that to, 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 to continue to move higher, let's say, because of payment structures or anything like that, that, that you can think of that digital commerce may have some kind of limitation, especially as it rolls into business to business commerce, or maybe like even transacting around a house or something like that, that, you know, would structurally, you know, disable the opportunity of upside for e-commerce to kind of like continue to um, eat into the, the sort of the retail paradigm. Those are the two kind of innovation questions we want. I wanted to like tackle uh, before we come back and bother you with more macro stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of a, you could probably, well, you could easily host a whole series of, of calls just on this topic, but I'll, I'll try to kind of keep it tight. Um, it's funny you, you mentioned Capital One because Capital One's kind of an interesting case study. So, um, you know, Capital One um, is was sort of like the first fintech, actually. Um, you know, Capital One used to be a division of a bank called Signet Bank. And there was a guy there named Rich Fairbank, and he partnered with another guy named Nigel Morris. And the two of them, and nowadays it's sort of, uh, you know, quaint, but, you know, back then it was this like revolutionary idea um, that they would go and do what was called risk-based pricing. Uh, so, you know, it, it used to be prior to really to Capital One that uh, you could only get a credit card if you had good credit. Um, you know, there wasn't really an, an, an option available for people who didn't have good credit. 
And uh, the innovation that those guys came up with was, well, what if we extended people or rather credit to people who have uh, not such great credit um, and we just charge them more for it? And, you know, we could, you know, get data and figure out, you know, what their propensity to charge off is and we could price accordingly and we could make a whole business off of that. And that company or that idea became Capital One. And so Capital One uh, has been run by the same guy, Rich Fairbank, uh, since its inception, you know, well over 30 years ago. And um, it's interesting because, you know, Fairbank's one of those sort of, I sort of joke that he's like this sort of modern day poet philosopher because he likes to get on his conference calls and sort of ramble about, you know, all his, his thoughts and insights into the industry. But, you know, one of the cool things is that he's been there from day one. And so he really has that sort of rare ability to kind of, you know, see things from a perch of like, here's how things have been evolving all this time. And I'll give you sort of a kind of a funny anecdote. You know, in the last few years, this whole sort of cottage industry we call BNPL, buy now, pay later, has really sort of burst onto the scene. And, you know, the funny thing about, you know, BNPL is that, um, you know, it's it's this sort of uh, this, you know, kind of newest generation you know, uh, or latest generation kind of, you know, millennial product. So if you want to go buy a sweater and it's like a hundred bucks, you can now, you know, pay for it in four dollars installments. Right. And, you know, the funny thing about it is, you know, to hear Fairbank talk about it, he's like, well, the thing most people don't realize about BNPL is that actually most of the money comes from these massively outsized MDRs, right? Merchant discount rates. So like if, if I'm Capital One uh, and, you know, and, well, if I'm an issuing bank and I want to uh, get acceptance um, at a merchant, then I'm probably going to pay a fully loaded MDR of like two and a half percent, right? So if somebody spends $100, the merchant ends up with $97.50 and the rest gets split up between the issuing bank, the, the network processor, the acquiring bank. Um, and what the BNPL industry does is they charge something like 7%, which is pretty wild. And you think about that and it's like, well, why would a merchant agree to that? And it's because basically the sort of person who's in charge of revenue growth says, hey, these are channels that are going to give us sales we wouldn't otherwise get, right? Which sounds good and it's true up until a point. But at some point, right, when profitability becomes the focus instead of just top line growth, people are going to take a long, hard look at that MDR rate and say, well, why are we actually paying 7%? So anyway, it's kind of interesting to hear, you know, these kinds of things. And, and Fairbank for, for years and years now, has been, you know, carving out chunks of his quarterly earnings calls to talk about this. He calls it a journey, but basically really this, this digital migration and what it takes for a bank to truly become, um, you know, sort of a modern day uh, digital financial institution. And it's not easy. Uh, it really entails a massive reworking of everything. Um, and it's extraordinarily expensive. And there's simply no way, I don't know if you have like uh you know, any relationships with small financial institutions or credit unions or anything like that. But the, I mean, it's almost like getting in a DeLorean and going back to like the early days of the internet, going to those websites to interact with their like online banking portals. I mean, they're so primitive. They're so simple and basic. And the problem is that it's very expensive uh, to really do anything um, as a small institution. And, you know, this is nothing new for, you know, decades and decades and decades, the banking industry has been consolidating, right? It's, you know, it just becomes, there are tremendous 
uh, economies of scale, and it becomes very, very expensive, um, you know, not just in terms of technology investment, but in terms of compliance and, and you know, regulatory costs and, um, you know, all of the sort of core functions of a bank, all of that stuff is more easily divided over a larger footprint, over a larger scale. And so there's been this sort of upward, you know, sort of M&A dynamic that's been going on in banks for many decades. Uh, but the technology side is what's really going to continue to drive that sort of ra- rationalization, that, that M&A uh, going forward, because it's just too expensive. Uh, for banks to be able to keep up. And if you're a bank below a certain threshold of total assets, there's just no way you can justify remaining sort of competitive um, in this sort of modern world. So I think that's really the challenge is, you know, one of the common themes is just this idea that like the cost of doing business is going up for banks on a number of fronts, whether it's compliance, regulatory, whether it's the cost of funding, i.e. deposits, um, whether it's the cost of technology investment. And so that's a challenge, right? Um, I think the second part of the question having to do with, you know, payments innovation and, and kind of, you know, where we were, where we are, where we're headed, you know, that is um, another area that is super interesting because, you know, that space is developing at sort of like, you know, kind of, I don't know if it's quite warp speed, but it's, it's something fast. And you basically got this dynamic where, um, you know, payments, had been on this right since the 1950s, right, with Bank America and the start of, you know, sort of non-physical payments, right? You know, the, the advancing, the growth has always been there. Um, it's always, you know, been well in the double digits um, every year, year after year for decades and decades, this ongoing, you know, migration of, of or conversion from what we call paper to plastic. Um, but you're getting closer to this sort of natural saturation point, right? Where, you know, nowadays, I mean, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was pretty rare that people like went out without cash in their pocket, right? Uh, to buy things nowadays, it's not at all uncommon. In fact, it's more common than not. And particularly as you sort of move into lower or younger generations. Um, and so we are kind of getting there. What I would say, though, is that the U.S. is much further along than much of the rest of the world. Um, so the rest of the world has a long way of catching up still to do. Um, I think that there's a massive, so that's really sort of like, you know, C to B. There's a massive B to B. There's a massive, um, you know, B to G and C to G, right? Consumer to government, business to government, um, as well as obviously business to business market that is there. And the payments companies are really working hard to try and figure out uh, the way, best ways to sort of you know get in there, and it, it has not been easy, frankly. Um, they have toeholds and they're growing, uh, but it's not been easy. I think one of the interesting developments, and this is actually going to start in about three months, um, is that the Fed is actually creating a whole new payment system um, called FedNow. And FedNow is really going to initially, so essentially what is FedNow? So right now, if you want to send a payment, if you're an individual or you know, a consumer or a business, and you want to make a payment, um, even by wire transfer over to another institution, it's going to take days for that payment to actually settle and clear. Um, FedNow is going to be essentially a replacement for that system that will be instantaneous. Uh, and so if you, you know, want to send money from one institution to another institution, it'll happen within a split second. 
and it'll be fully cleared and settled uh, in real time. And that's going to begin in July of this year. That's the, the, the estimated target launch date. And what it will begin with is really the government itself. And, and that's how a lot of things get started, because obviously the government is so large um, that now if you're a business and you do business with the government and you want to pay the government or the government pay you, then you have to sign up for FedNow uh, in order to make those payments. Um, and so that's how it'll sort of get started, but then it'll kind of grow out from there. And so then, you know, the question becomes, well, you know, how do the payments companies ultimately sort of uh, interject themselves, if you will, right? So that they can continue to sort of, um, you know, be toll collectors and all of this. So I think that's going to be the next big phase um, of, of them sort of figuring things out. Uh, but the, the point is that the payments uh, and transaction landscape is evolving uh, really faster than it ever has. Um, and, you know, we've seen uh, so much innovation, so much development on this front in the last decade. And, you know, whether it's, you know, all these different fintechs, uh, whether it's, you know, crypto applications, blockchain technologies. Um, and so I don't think, or I can't really think of any good reason why uh, that progress is, is likely to slow down. If anything, I think it's gonna keep speeding up. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. Awesome. I want to squeeze in one last macro question if we can. Um, and this one is is kind of like about stagflation um, and the risks of stagflation. And and I think, um, you know, Andrew put this question well in the chat uh, between us. And he was, he said, you know, we've been in such a great economic environment in part sponsored by ZERP and, and for 15 years of low inflation and low cost, low rates. Um, does something like this catch up of rates also stimulate uh, further inflation because companies need to, you know, kind of like adjust their prices higher to keep up with their costs. And so there's this like rolling spinning, everything costs more, you know, rates cost, rates stay high. You know, we kind of like, you know, begrudge ourselves into that. And then also like, because, you know, what you had, you know, I, you mentioned at the beginning about uh, a, one crisis doesn't usually repeat itself exactly the same way. I'm actually worried more about like maybe the inverse of stagflation, something we haven't seen before. Um, well, sorry, the inverse is probably the wrong word, but some kind of like painful, I don't know if it's deflation or some kind of element that we're not really, you know, considering here that could be the outcome of this, but just wanted to give you a chance to maybe comment on kind of that direction. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, I think forecasting, you know, one, two, three, four quarters out is incredibly difficult. Um, you have to have really a probability-based framework. Uh, to be anything better than, you know, 50-50. Um, and it's it's a real challenge. So, you know, these kinds of questions um, really require, you know, a tremendous amount of assumption layering and, and going, you know, pretty far into the future. 
I will say a few things. I think you're going to have um, these sort of two competing forces. And to be you know, quite frank, I don't know which one is ultimately going to be more powerful. But you know, one of these forces is inherently inflationary. And that is, uh, I'm sure, something you guys are very familiar with, which is reshoring, right? So, you know, the fact that we've effectively had this very low-cost uh, source of production um, around the world, basically, you know, um, production goes to the lowest-cost uh, areas uh, worldwide for, and that's, you know, global trade's been on the upswing for decades and decades, and that's generally been a good thing from a pricing standpoint. Um, it's kept inflation low. But I think in light of you know everything going on these days, that trend is is reversing. And we actually have a chart in our macro theme stack on it's slide 54 that basically shows uh, the number, the trend in uh, the word reshoring uh, in terms of each quarter's uh, earnings call mentions across all companies. And it's been going uh, up really sort of exponentially um, over the last couple of years. And so I think that's going to be an inherently inflationary trend. Against the backdrop of that, however, um, there is a massive looming crisis hanging over most of the world, uh, which is um, really demographic in nature. So there's something like only about six countries worldwide uh, that have sort of long-term positive uh, population or demographic trends. Um, the U.S. is one, uh, Sweden is one, um, France is one. Uh, Argentina is one, I forget the others, um, but that's basically it. The rest of the world, um, including really populous places like China, are going to see uh, populations uh, in decline uh, for decades to come. And we've really already reached that point in Europe. Europe's now actually past peak population and its population is declining. Uh, China is sort of in this temporary plateauing. So the population is no longer growing, uh, it's going to be a few years, several years to a few years uh, before it starts going down. But when it starts going down, it's going to do so pretty rapidly. And, you know, it's interesting, right? Because if you go and you look at countries where the population is more aged, so places like Japan, places like Greece, and you look, so Japan's population peaked in right around 1990. Um, Greece's population peaked right around 2005. And you look at what happens to asset prices in those markets following those population peaks. So Japan had a massive housing boom, became a massive housing bust, um, as did the Nikkei. Um, and those two things were really coincident with that demographic peak and rollover. Look at Greece. Greece's uh, property markets uh, collapsed uh, in the wake of its population peaking. And this isn't like rocket science, right? You basically have fewer and fewer people to buy the stuff that's out there, right? So what happens to the price? Um, and so that's really going to be happening sort of worldwide uh, over the decades to come with a very small, limited number of, of exceptions. Um, and that trend is going to be massively disinflationary or deflationary. Um, so you kind of got to put those two forces alongside each other. And that's not an easy thing to do uh, in terms of thinking. And counteracting all that is going to be the Fed printing like crazy, right? Trying to stimulate. Um, so, you know, long term, I think that actually bodes well for hard assets, right? As stores of value. Um, but uh, yeah, so those are some of my longer term thoughts. Josh, 
Amazing. Uh, I'm left with like a ton of thoughts. I've taken notes the entire time. Um, I'll try to put them into make some sense of them and maybe shoot them over and get your comments. But um, this was like one of the best sessions we've had. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, to all our listeners, thank you so much for listening in to what has been um, Unscripted Equity Curiosity Season 3, Episode 7. I think one that's going to go down in the history books. Thanks very much, everybody. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.